Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Good morning. It's good to be here. This is such a privilege uh, and an honor. Um, this, this conference uh, has come to represent something very special to our fellowship. Um, and the men that have stood in these morning sessions and in the evening sessions uh, in the years before now, um, when I've been sitting there and listening, those men are some of the most admirable uh, men I've, I've ever met and um, some of the best teachers, uh, some of the best minds, uh, some of the most faith-filled men that I've, I've had the privilege of, of following. And so to be here with you this morning, it is a, a great honor, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And so as, as Troy was saying, last uh, spring, uh, Kenny Morgan and I had the opportunity of uh, teaching some content that we've been working on for a while in the Bible Institute, uh, Pastor Kenny Morgan teaches the Second Samuel uh, content in our survey course. Uh, I teach the uh, First Samuel class, and so you know, over time, Kenny and I kind of sat around each other and began talking and talking about leadership and talking about investment in the lives of the leaders that we're developing at Midtown Baptist Temple. And uh, in time, we just realized that we were speaking a, a, a like a foreign language. Uh, we, were, we were using names from the Old Testament that people aren't commonly using. And we were, we were using examples and, and things uh, from, the, from the books of Samuel and, and of Chronicles and Kings. And we, we started talking and we decided, look, we should probably, this is the way I always think. This is probably my fault. We should probably write a book, you know. You should, we should write a book. And so we've been kind of working on that slowly and, and we're hoping to, to get that done soon. But but James invited us out to Discipleship Conference. We taught a series of sermons that we called A Tale of Two Houses. And the objective was to establish a contrast between the character qualities of both good and bad leaders. And we know uh, we've all been around good and bad leaders uh, in our workplaces, uh, but also probably in church, sadly, uh, as well if you've been around for any length of time. But uh, we believe that these books are rich with some of the most interesting characters that you'll find in the whole of Scripture. And uh, as we taught in the spring, we had a wonderful, wonderful time teaching the material, and we're grateful that we've been invited here. But we do believe that First and Second Samuel is some of the richest content on leadership in the whole of Scripture because it paints so clearly the strengths and the weaknesses of leaders. And I think that all of us, when we read these books, recognize that we are all David at his very best, but we're also David at his worst. We're, we're both men. We are all sometimes Jonathan, and sometimes we're Joab. We, we want the heart, we want to have the heart of Hannah, but so often we have the heart of Penina. We all want to lead like Samuel, but some of us carry the baggage and the weaknesses of Eli. 
So now over the, the next few days, Kenny and I are going to strive to address the following question for you. And so if you're taking notes, <coughs> uh, if you're taking notes, here's the question that we're going to, that's going to kind of uh, en- encapsulate everything that we're talking about. And it's this, will we raise up the next generation to succeed or fail in the stewardship of our churches and the mission? Will we raise up the next generation to succeed or fail in their stewardship of our churches and the mission? And this this question reminds us that it comes down to how we invest. It comes down to what we decide to do as the predecessors. What kind of faith do we have? What kind of expectations do we have in the ministry? What kind of philosophy do we hold to when investing in young men and women, the future of our churches, but just as importantly and more importantly, the future church planters, missionaries, and men and women of God that take the gospel into the furthest parts of the earth. Now, we will approach this question as an issue of leadership itself. Each day, we're going to address this question by challenging you in different ways. And so let me walk you through briefly uh, what each day is going to look like. I would love a water. Yeah, please. <clears throat> and if, is it possible to get the notes up there just so I can see where I'm at on that screen? On the, the slides up there? Is that not a thing? Okay, you're good, dude. It's all good, man. All right, so we're off to a good start. I'm like up here choking to death. <clears throat> so the day, day one today, uh, we're going to be examining the heart of a leader. We're going to be examining the heart of a leader and asking, how do I ensure that I personally, I'm, I'm personally fit to lead the next generation? Because that's where it has to start. It has to start with us. It has to start at home. It has to start with the way that we behave and what our character looks like. If we're going to make an investment in the next generation, then it better begin right here with us. So we need to examine our own heart, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Tomorrow, Kenny and I will be teaching, and you will hopefully be learning, how to identify faithful leaders. How to identify faithful leaders in your ministry. What do they look like? And and the question would be this. How do I distinguish those who are fit to lead in the next generation. Now, everyone's called to lead. We're going to be raising up leaders of of all different sorts, of different calibers, of different gifting. But there are some leaders that we have to distinguish from among the pack. Jesus had his, his 500, his 120, he had his 12, and he had his three, okay? In David's battalion, there were 400 that grew into thousands uh, of soldiers, of men, of infantrymen. But then he had his 30 that, that grew to possibly as many as 58. But then he had his three. He had his three mighty men. And then he had his secondary three mighty men that were like just the second three, right? The B squad. And in our ministries, the same things are happening. Everyone is of equal importance, equal significance to the mission. But as pastors, which I believe this room is comprised of a lot of pastors, Um, We have to identify the men who are coming up behind us, the men that we're going to be sending out. Those decisions are some of the hardest decisions in ministry, and so we better know how to identify 
those kinds of leaders. Day three, we will be learning how to establish a generation of mighty men. So we'll be talking about David's mighty men at length. And we're going to be asking ourselves, how do I invest in the leaders of the next generation? What does, what does, thanks guys, you guys are pros. Look at that. Thank you. Um, how do I invest in the leaders of the next generation? How do I go about doing that? What are the things that I need to be looking for? What are the things that I need to be doing? What does that investment look like in terms of uh, philosophy of ministry? And how do I employ people? That's day three. And so we're going to pray now and we're going to get right into it. I want to let you know up front that today's uh, teaching is, for me, is going to be the most dense. It's going to cover the most principles. And so you need to kind of tighten up your bootlaces and have your pen ready uh, because we're going to cover a lot of ground. I believe today we have 10 principles to cover in my section alone. Uh, but uh, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. All right? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again just for this opportunity. I'm grateful for this audience of godly men and women uh, that are devoted to your mission, uh, that are searching your scriptures, that are listening to your spirit, and desire to make sure that the thing that they have in you, that they, the thing that they have in their church, that it only improves and strengthens with time. That's their conviction. And so, God, I pray that you would help them. Lord, I'm thankful for their friendship. Uh, there's not many places in the world where I can walk into the room and, and hug 50 people in two minutes. Um, there is love here. There is a desire to be unified. And so, God, I, I pray that you would never let Satan get in the way of that and that we would only continue to grow in our love for one another and that our ranks would only expand with time, just like David's uh, mighty men and his soldiers did. Help us. We want to reach the world. Uh, we're a weak people. And it's going to require uh, you, you doing all the work uh, and, just, and just inviting us along. And so, Lord, help us. Give us humble hearts. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Examining the heart of a leader, part one. 1 Samuel 15. So at this point in the story... Uh, of 1 Samuel, Saul's leadership has already faltered several times. All right, so if you're familiar with the book, uh, um, you'll know that, that in the narrative, Saul has already kind of messed up a few times and has put his ministry and has put his, his kingdom in danger. And what we're going to find today in 1 Samuel 15 is a very, very robust examination of Saul's leadership as well as Samuel. So we're going to kind of be looking at Saul and Samuel back and forth, primarily Saul. And this chapter has a high concentration of leadership principles, and we're going to have to hit them fast. Um, we're going to have to move quickly. Okay, so let's start by reading 1 Samuel 15.1, and let's set the stage. So it says, Samuel uh, also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. And then, thus saith the Lord of hosts. So he's rehearsing these things to Saul. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. How he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek. 
and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And so the command here is that Saul, as the anointed king, must fulfill God's desire to destroy the Amalekites. These were the enemy uh, people of Israel. They were a scourge on Israel. And so, so, you know, the Amalekites were kind of, of a transient tribal people uh, that broke up into faction, uh, factions and raided villages all throughout Israel. All right, these were, in, in contemporary time, the contemporary times of Saul, they were a plague on the people. And so the, the nation of Israel, these villages, these, these townships were looking to their new king uh, of only a few years now. They're looking to him as a leader and saying, you need to rid us of these people because they are, they are messing us up. Anytime we begin something good or begin to establish a work, the Amalekites come in and they take what, what God has given us. And so, so the responsibility here, Saul feels this pressure, is to deal with the Amalekites just as God asked, to wipe them off the face of the planet. If you remember long before this moment, God promised that he would deal with the Amalekites because of the uh, unprovoked attack on the nation of Israel as they were coming across the Red Sea and headed towards the Promised Land. Deuteronomy 25, 17 says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. So they've, the Amalekites' story is that they've always been messing with the weak people. They've always been picking off the weak. There's a lot of things that we could look at even here. But, but listen, I mean, just a briefly, a side principle would be this. As leaders, it's our responsibility to deal with wolves in our midst. Those that are about picking off the feeble and the weak. We need, we need to be energized to protect our people. But that's, that's bonus content. Okay. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Okay, so he's, he's calling that early, that young nation of Israel. Look, there's going to come a point when you're going to be in a place of strength and it will be your responsibility to go and destroy the Amalekites from off the face of the earth. Exodus 17, 14 says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. So that's pretty important. Write it down and rehearse it over and over again. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This is a promise of God. And so God means business. He wanted to do away with anyone who sought to harm his people. And I hope that as leaders, we, we feel that as well. And he wanted Saul to obey him. And he says to him, look, spare them not. Slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. That's a tough, that's a tough request. That's a tough thing to do. But it was the command of God. And though we might not understand it, God always sees things that we can't see. And though we can't fully understand this kind of vengeance, justice, the justice of God is truly just, and it's always rooted in love. And so God's love for his people was so great that he was unwilling to let anything come in conflict 
with their growth and development. So that's the command. God has clearly communicated to his leader. And at the risk of being obvious, this is where we must start. This is the very first principle that we must cover, and it's this. The heart of every biblical leader is measured by their willingness to obey. I'm sorry if that sounds obvious, but I think that's where we have to start. I think every other principle that we're going to cover for the remainder of these morning sessions has to come back to the idea that if the leader is unwilling to obey, then nothing else is really important. We have to obey the Lord. John 14, 15 says this. If, we lo- uh, if ye love me, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Our love for God, listen, our love for God is reflected in our willingness to obey and in turn lead others to obey. Because if we don't obey as the leaders, can we raise up obedient people? Of course not. Of course we can't. So everything that we look at today comes back to this point, obedience. Now listen, but more than obedience, and this is the critical thing I need you to get, more than obedience, but an obedience, an obedience, a type of obedience that shares in the heartbeat of God. Obedience, not as a function of duty, not as a function of tradition, not as a, 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 a form of culture, not, not a type of obedience that looks like we're secretly trying to earn the favor of men, but an obedience that reflects the heartbeat of God, that reflects friendship and love for our Savior. Because there's a lot of people that are obeying out of duty. They're obeying because people are watching them. They're obeying because, well, they have to. They're obeying because they fit within a, a tradition or a, or a, a, a set of, of cultural ideals that exist within their church congregation. And they're obe- obeying. And they're lining up and they're doing their duty. But listen to me. That kind of obedience always falters. It always does. See, obedience that springs from familiarity with God's word and his heart is the only kind of obedience that has longevity. In Deuteronomy, as God makes promises to the nation of Israel, we have to note something very important in the way that he explains himself. He's making these promises to his uh, nation, and, and he, he, uh, we, let's note the order in which he presents these promises. I think it's relevant. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5 says this, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. What a wonderful promise. And I think that speaks to the next generation, doesn't it? He'll multiply thee above thy fathers. But look, listen to the next thing that God says in his list of promises. If you're following along in verse 6, it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. 
And then he continues to say in verse 7, And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee. I'll, I'll deal with the enemies which persecute thee, which is exactly what Saul needed. Saul needed to start with heart circumcision. He needed to have familiarity with the Lord. He needed to love the Lord his God with all his heart so that his enemies could be dealt with. And then look at verse 8. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. In other words, the right heart posture before the Lord, intimacy with God, should always precede obedience. That the, following the commands of God are only a byproduct of knowing Jesus Christ intimately and knowing him with love and to, like John the Beloved, put your head against the bosom of Christ and know his very heartbeat. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jonah. It's such a short book. There's so much going on in such a short amount of time. But I believe, it's my personal belief, that the entire book is about God pursuing Jonah's heart. Because when we come to the end of the book, Jonah is confronted with God saying, look, are your emotions in line with mine? I like, is your, is your wrath actually, the way you feel, is that actually right? Look at what I just did. Look, look at all these people who just come to know me. Do you not see what I'm up to? And it's funny, God could have used anyone for this work. It's not like he did a whole lot. He just shows up, says a few words, and then the all the Ninevite people, the entire city comes to know God. They all repent. He didn't do much. God could have used anybody to do that. But you know what God was up to? He was pursuing the heart of a man. And God wants people to obey him, not out of form, not out of function, but out of fellowship and love and friendship. A biblical leader must be the type of Christian that is not obedient as a matter of form, but as a matter of friendship. And the beginning, this is the, 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 the paradigm of that. The other side, the, the flip side of that is this. The beginning of every compromise is a, is a failure to love God. The beginning of every compromise in every leader's life always begins the same way. It's a failure to love God the right way. C.S. Lewis said that love is the great conqueror of lust. And I think that's accurate. You, wanna, you want to, uh, you know, fight against the lust in your life, we'll begin by loving God. And as we know of Saul, and as we will see today, Saul's lack of communion with God results in a progression towards lust. His, his failure to meet with God and to know God produces doubt and disobedience in his life. And what we must know is that leaders' disobedience often becomes the disobedience of the people. That the disobedience of a leader often becomes the disobedience of the people that they've been called to lead. And so we have to take our obedience very seriously. Let's continue on and look at the compromise uh, in Saul's life and ministry. <clears throat> Verse 4. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell him 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. 
So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So what we see here is an act of grace that Saul extends to the Kenites. And we know from Scripture that the Kenites are the kindred tribe of Jethro. This is Moses' father-in-law. And so this is the tribe that springs forth from, from his familial, uh, familial lineage. And they were a great friend to the nation of Israel in the wilderness years when really they had no friends. And so Saul uses his discernment, a surprising moment of discernment in Saul's life. He uses his discernment and his relationship with the Kenites, and he exhibits prudence towards a, a, a potential long-term ally. But for those of you who are familiar with Saul, we know that it's rarely that he's discerning. He's rarely discerning in his diplomacy, and he's rarely discerning in his relationships. And actually, Saul's testimony is that he has a hard time distinguishing between who's his friend and who's his foe. For example, at times he entreats David as his friend and as his son. <laughs> he cares, with him, uh, cares for him more than he cares for anyone. But then at other times he's suspicious of David and he makes him his enemy. 1 Samuel 18.7 says, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. There was a turning in his spirit because he was jealous. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? So that's how far he jumps, like in a moment. There's like some ladies that are like in the village singing this song about how David slayed his ten thousands, and he, he, he hears about it, and he goes from loving this man to hating him in a moment out of sheer jealousy. It says, and Saul eyed David from that day and forward. This is Saul's MO. At times he, he loves John, his son Jonathan. He cares for him deeply. But then at other times he's skeptical of his loyalties. Doubtful of his own son. Saul fails to heed Samuel's counsel. Samuel was such a good friend to Saul. I mean, from the very beginning, the very moment that they met, Samuel bent over backwards to express his love to Saul. But Saul fails to heed Samuel's counsel over and over again, then later is so desperate to hear Samuel's counsel that he employs a medium to conjure him back up from the dead. I mean, if that ain't double-minded, he, he's, he's, he can never ever discern discern who was his friend and who was his enemy. And here's the key point that you have to get down, and that's this, and I hope you catch this. Leaders who can't discern friends from enemies will always be prone to division. We've all seen men like this. They're, they let you in, they let you in, they push you away. They draw you in close. They pretend to be your friend. They, they pretend to care for you. They, 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 they maybe even begin to make an investment into your life, but then suddenly you falter or you make a mistake, and then they hold that against you, and suddenly you be, become the enemy. Or, or maybe they, they, they begin to be effective in ministry, and God begins to use them, and they're fruitful, and then you're suspicious of that. 
Listen to me, leaders. We cannot afford to be suspicious people. It's our responsibility to invest and take risks on people. And we should desire with all of our heart to say, well, maybe I've slain my thousands, but this young man or this woman that I'm investing in, I pray to God that they slay their ten thousands. I pray to God that that be true. And if we don't love that idea, if, if, if we grow to not understand who's our friend or who's our foe, then we will be the type of people that divide churches, that divide ministries, that speak contention into, into where fellowship exists, where there's love. We'll speak contention into that and we'll spoil the pot. This is a very serious question for you. And here it is. Can a man who doesn't know how to have and sustain trustworthy friendships truly care for and sustain a flock? Can a pastor or a leader in ministry who does not know how to have deep and meaningful friendships truly make a sustaining investment into other people's lives and promote fellowship within the congregation of believers that they've been given oversight of? Can they? I'm doubtful. I don't personally think so. Because with this kind of leader, everyone is always on trial. All the time in their mind, everyone is on trial. The Bible's clear. Listen, the ability to discern between friend or foe is critical to our spiritual health and the diplomacy of our leadership. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not. Neither go into uh, into thy brother's house in the day of thy calamity, for better is a neighbor that is near than a brother uh, far off. Have we not found something better in one another than what we have in even our own families? (laughs) I mean, for many of us. We have something so great in one another. We should desire it. We should cultivate it. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And then verse 17, it says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Friendships are critical in the ministry. But you say to yourself, well, sometimes, sometimes a friend becomes an enemy. What what happens when a friend becomes an enemy? I mean, you're you're not considering that. Listen to me, I understand more than anyone that as a leader, You walk around, you've got knives in your back, you've got wounds that you deal with because you've had friends become your enemies. You've had, you have had friends that you cared for, that you invested in, that you you had bonds with, you were knit together, that wounded you in such a way that you will never forget, you will always carry those wounds. It's true. Psalms 41.9 declares it. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Many of us have have, had friends who've betrayed us. Many of us have have, have the the wounds to to prove that. But here's what I want to ask you. Who cares? (laughs) What of it? What of it? Does that mean we just live the rest of our lives as pessimists? 
as accusers of the brethren, looking side-eyed at everyone in ministry, afraid to partner with people that, that clearly love us? Is that how we're going to live? Are we going to be suspicious of every man that enters our circle the way Saul was? God forbid. Look, it's our responsibility in the power of the Spirit to discern between those who are friends and those who seek to do us harm. To know the difference between an Amalekite and a Kenite. It's our responsibility to know that. But if we walk around with a chip on our shoulder and fear, and, and fear in our hearts, if our view of people is tainted with suspicion, at best, we will raise the next generation to be re- relationally guarded people. which is really just my polite way of saying unaccountable. We will raise the next generation of people to resist true accountability. But worse than that, worse than that, we will never take risks on the men men and women that God has given us. And there will be no generation in our wake. Too many leaders spend more time shadow boxing than taking territory for the kingdom. I mean, have you ever just imagined what Saul was like alone in his kingdom after David had left? He was afraid of his own shadow. He's just throwing javelins at people, (laughs) like angry. But, But that's the spirit of contention. And so, and so many of us are so busy fighting our shadow that we don't have time to make a kingdom investment. And you know, I, I, grew, up, I grew up in an independent Baptist church. And I grew up uh, a lot like you guys did. But I had one thing. Sam Miles always guarded me as I was growing up in the faith. Sam always guarded me from the perverse politics and, and naysaying that exists within our ranks. I, did, I had no idea until I was a grown man pastoring how contentious and stubborn independent Baptists can be. And I want to say, I don't like it. I mean, we treat each other from church to church that way, but you know what? I've seen people spoil what God's given them in their own churches because of suspicion. So while Saul showed discernment with the Kenites, we learn almost immediately that he shows no discernment with the Amalekites. Verse 7 says this, And Saul smote the Amalekites from from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So Saul takes great care to spare the Kenites But interestingly enough, he also takes great care to spare the livestock. But the weird thing about that is he has no problem killing the women and children. 
But then he refrains from killing Agag. So Saul looks heroic. He's done everything to make himself look heroic. He's done everything with his soldiers to make himself look holy. I mean, we'll hear that in a minute in the dialogue that he shares with Samuel. His, his goal is to present himself as heroic and holy. That's what he's trying to do here. That's what he wants people to perceive of him. But the truth is, his lustfulness reveals him to be neither. And so here's our key point. Biblical leaders can't afford to have mixed motives. We can't afford to have mixed motives. Saul's lust for wealth and power tainted his ability to, ability to obey with precision. Purity in our motive is important. Because the truth is, lust always seeks to thwart our obedience. Whatever we lust for is always seeking to thwart obedience in our lives. You can only do God's work your way for so long before it blows up in your face. Doing ministry in our flesh is it's a very dangerous thing to do. William Gurnall, the 16th century minister and author on spiritual warfare, says, Therefore tremble, O man, at any power thou hast. Right? Whatever power or strength or giftings that you believe that you have, Tremble at that, except thou usest it for God. Art thou strong in body? Who hath, who hath thy strength? Who's given you that strength? God or thy lusts? There are a lot of men that are very strong, and they might proclaim God, but the truth is they're functioning in lust. Their lusts are what drive them. Lust for acknowledgement. Lust for the microphone. Lust to be seen, lust to be applauded. And that's, their, that's their, their true strength. That's where they get their strength from. And that kind of strength always backfires. What lusts do we hide in our hearts that endanger the mission? And the truth is the only way to distill and learn what those lusts are, because we're so blinded to them, you know, we spend years cultivating in the background of our mind, lusts and, and we, we uh, establish idols. that are, We keep them in the closet. We keep our idols in the closet so no one can see them. But when no one's around, we get them out. And we're so familiar with them now that we don't even see them as idols. We just see them as friends. And so what's the big deal? And we, we entertain these idols for so long, these lusts for so long in our life, that we actually intermingle the philosophy of those idols into the way that we do ministry. We bring them in. And it's, it's incredibly dangerous. And the only way to root those kinds of idolatry and lust out, the only way to, to see what our, we all have them. Listen to me. We all have ulterior motives. You're lying to yourself if you don't. We all have them. And the only way to understand what they are and to root them out is to let God do the examining. That's an examination that only God can do. You know, we're talking about the examining what a leader is. But this is so relevant. Psalm 139.23 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God, please know those things and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
this is, what, this is the place that we have to come to. We have to, we have to grow so close with the Lord and so familiar with him that this is a question that we ask him every day. We need, to, we need the Lord to examine us and to reveal to us our areas of weakness and the things that we lust after, the things that we have appetites for that are unbecoming of a believer. And we need him to teach us new appetites. Now, now what, what about when Samuel... Um, discovers what Saul's done. <laughs> what of that? When Samuel sees the, the, the sin of Saul, watch how he responds. Because I think it, it carries for us some very important leadership principles that we need to remember. And that, that begins here in verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. So here's the next principle that I think we need to hear. Biblical leaders grieve the failures of other leaders. A biblical leader grieves the failures of other leaders. Samuel grieves Saul's failure. We see his grief here and we see at the end of chapter 2 as well. He's languished over this. He's broken over this disqualifying sin in Saul's life. It was disqualifying. And it broke Samuel's heart. Now, I want you to think about this for a second because I think his response is actually really beautiful and important. Remember this. I want you to remember this. That Saul was the, Saul was the king that Samuel never wanted. I mean, it wasn't long ago that Samuel was grieving the fact that they even wanted a king. Samuel never even wanted Saul. And yet he grieves this loss. Samuel's heart wasn't, see, I told you so. There was no spite. There was no delight in Saul's failure. His heart was, a, was only of sadness. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? I mean, Saul was an absolute tool. He made, he made Samuel's life just way stressful. You know how good Samuel had it for those 40 years? There was peace. Just imagine like children frolicking in the streets. No, there, was no, there was no war for 40 years. And then Saul shows up and everything is turmoil. Everything is stressful. And yet here we have Samuel absolutely broken over Saul. Why? Because failure in leadership always represents failure in a church's capacity to give worship. See, when we watch leaders falter, when we see them fall, it's not just about them. 
And it goes even beyond their church. It goes even beyond their flock. It goes beyond the fallout within the congregation. Listen. The whole thing represents a failure to give God the glory that he deserves. Worship has been robbed of the living God. It's been robbed from him. And that should break our hearts. That should cut us deep. If God is not getting what he deserves, that should always produce grief in us. When we secretly celebrate the failure of other pastors and leaders, I believe that we invite the chastisement of God into our lives. And so you should expect that. Proverbs 17.5 says, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. 1 Corinthians 13.6 Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It says a lot about your leadership based on how you respond when you see other leaders in ministry struggle. It says a lot about your character and who you are and what you're going to reproduce. So let me advocate for brokenness. Let me advocate for humility. We, we, humility is the one thing. I mean, we're talk about, we talk about sanctification and we talk about, we talk about becoming perfect, becoming Christ-like, right? And we teach this and we preach this and it's the endeavor of our entire life But you have to know that one of the most powerful and distinct character qualities of the Son of God is that he was humble through every instance and situation of his life when he was mistreated, when when, when he was abused. There was always, always, always humility. And when we're abused and when we see things falling apart, we like to say, told you so, or we like to get defensive or guarded. And we have to overcome that. We have to come to a place of humility before the Lord if we want to raise up another generation that's sustainable in the mission. We have to. We can't afford to have our ministries punished because of our, the way we look at other people. Okay, are you guys with me? I, mean, I, just, spent, I just spent the weekend at a fall retreat with 250 young adults. And they're hooping and hollering and And y'all are in here all extra stoic looking at me like. So it's hard for me to read what's going on right now. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to trust the Lord. Let's look at the cover-up. Let's look at the cover-up. Verse 12. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. (laughs) Key point. Deficient leaders justify themselves by making sin sound like obedience. This dude Saul has the nerve to say, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Just the way he asked me to do it, I did it. 
And we look at that and we say to ourselves, man, that's obnoxious. That's so obnoxious. What a goof. But to be honest, this is us. This is who we are. Is this not the same attitude that we all struggle with from time to time? Convinced that we are right even when we're wrong? I mean, from my perspective, from my perspective, I'm always right. From my perspective, I feel like I've always got it figured out. That's my inclination. That's yours too. That's carnal thinking. In my mind, everything I do in ministry is obeying God. You know, because I'm doing it. And I'm God's favorite child. And so I'm out here doing it. And it's got to be obedience, right? That's the perspective that we're inclined to as leaders. You know what this is called? It's called self-righteousness. Who isn't holy in their own eyes? You know? Proverbs 30, 12 says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Is that our generation? I mean, we're, talking about, we're supposed to be talking about the next generation, but today we're talking about our generation and us and our churches and our homes and our ministry. We're talking about us. Are we pure in our own eyes? But actually, we're filthy in need of washing. Samuel says to him, What meaneth this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. He's like, oh, so you obeyed, huh? Hmm. Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you obeyed. So look, maybe it's not always our place. And maybe the circumstances, they sometimes prohibit us and keep us from doing this. And some of us, you know, some of us were introverts and, and, and as pastors and leaders, we really don't, we want to avoid conflict. But here's what we learn from Samuel in this next principle. Biblical leaders must not be afraid to confront sin in other leaders. We must not be afraid to confront sin in other leaders. Why? Well, for the sake of the mission. For the sake of our churches and the sake of our fellowship with one another. We cannot be afraid to confront sin. We can't dismiss it. We can't pretend like it's not there. We have to deal with it. Even when we don't want to. Even when it's not convenient. Even when it hurts to do it. Even if it means that something is lost to preserve the whole. We have to be willing to confront sin in other leaders. Too many pastors don't have pastors. Right? Too many pastors don't actually have pastors of their own. Too many men of God preach accountability, but then have none. 
I think I've found this fascinating for a really long time, and I think it's difficult to do, so I don't blame anyone. I think it's difficult sometimes for pastors to find true accountability. But it's really interesting to me how we're always preaching about fellowship and accountability and how we need to be accountable to one another. But what we really mean is that's for the flock, that's for the congregation. But me as the pastor, I'm not looking for anyone to hold me accountable. That's dangerous business. That's dangerous. Too many of us don't have anyone up in our day-to-day business of ministry. They don't, ha- they don't know us. They don't know- we're not vulnerable to them. Too many of us are in that position. And we wonder why, we wonder why we all, we've all seen so many people and seen so many stories of men disqualifying themselves from the ministry. But then we assume, we assume that we're not also just made of flesh. That we couldn't just next week look just like that. We're lying to ourselves. Listen, the effectiveness of our mission is relative to the effectiveness of our accountability. The, the, effect, the, effectiveness, the effectiveness of our mission is relative to the effectiveness of our accountability. If we're not willing to be sharpened, then we won't be sharp. Real simple. I mean, I'm sorry if this seems real obvious. and This might be real boring stuff. But if we don't cover this ground, how are we going to possibly talk about raising up leaders? And so many of us, so many of us, uh, are not sharp and effective in our mission. We're not raising up leaders and we're not effective in ministry. We're not seeing souls come to Christ. And you know what? Some of the leaders in our ministry need to look at ourselves and say, maybe I need to begin with some accountability. Maybe that would be good. Verse 15. And Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we, we have utterly destroyed. Our next key point is this. Deficient leaders justify sin by blaming those they lead. I would, I would never do this. I would never do this. This isn't me. This isn't how I lead. Really think about your ministry. Think about all the things that you want to get done in ministry. Think about all the objectives that you have. I don't know, your 2023 vision. Think about all the things that you want in the ministry that you're involved in and and you strive for. And then consider when those things don't go well and they don't go as planned, how often do you look around and blame someone else? I bet it's more often than you think. Lots of churches and and pastors and elders, they they look like that Spider-Man meme, you know, with the three Spider-Men and they're all like, Blaming somebody else, right? No one is willing to bear the burden of failure. No one wants to bear the burden of failure. But I want to point something out. that Samuel doesn't hold the elders and the captains or the army of Israel accountable. It's not like he looks past Saul and says, well, who else can I blame then? Oh, you said it was someone over here? Oh, it was these guys that did it. 
It's not, it's not like Samuel doesn't play into that. Because Samuel knows something that we should all know. That leaders are accountable. They're accountable to God. Samuel looked Saul in the eyes and said, explain yourself. You explain yourself. Leaders are at a supreme disadvantage in this regard. Did you know that? It's one of the most sucky things about being a pastor. Is knowing that God is holding you to a higher standard. And that's true for any leader. That's true for any elder, any minister in the church that holds any responsibility. He's holding you to a higher standard. And there will be no scapegoat on your watch. There won't be. You might be pointing other directions, but the truth is, God's pointing at you. He's talking to you. When God examines your life, rather than deflecting like Adam did in the garden, we must own the state of our churches, our ministries, and our families. We have to own that. Own what belongs to you, and then leave the rest to the Lord, because there is a lot of it that's out of our control. Who God's put in your church, sometimes that's out of your control. But you know what? You can love those people and you can lead them. And you can trust the Lord that God will continue to grow your congregation and provide what you need. But I don't think God is in the business of providing and helping and blessing leaders who haven't learned to stop blaming the flock for the problems that they face. Okay, we still got more to cover. Let's look at the consequences. Verse 16, then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites. Remember this? Remember this? This wasn't that long ago. And fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? So Samuel has to tell Saul and remind him all that God has done in his life. He starts from the beginning. He says, remember how God, like, you were like a nobody chasing after donkeys in the wilderness? Remember that? Remember how God selected you and pulled you out of your circumstances and made you king over all of Israel? And now you actually, you live, you live, as a ruler over a kingdom, you have servants, they're providing for you. Your life looks good, it looks different. Now you have responsibility that's, that's way beyond what you could ever imagine. What a wonderful story you have. And then you didn't obey. And then you didn't obey. And I think this is true for so many pastors. It's hard for us to appreciate what we have because we're so worried about what we don't have. And it's a dangerous position to be in. It makes us ripe, ripe for compromise. Here's the next key point. Biblical leaders know that gratitude produces obedience. I mean, that's what, that's what Samuel's saying is like, look, remember all that God did. You forgot what God did. And that's part of our problem too. We've forgotten what God has done in our lives and in our churches. How rich we are. 
how wonderful it is because we're so busy focused on how hard it is or, 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 or the hurdles in our ministry or what we don't have. We're so focused on those things that we fail to give God gratitude. And I think it's really important for us to remember that almost every instance or teaching on prayer in Scripture in the New Testament begins with teaching us how to be thankful before God. We have to learn gratitude because it's the beginning of true obedience. We must practice gratitude so no one else has to say, uh, say, to, you know, say to us, you know, so we don't have to someone come in our life and say, um, oh, you know, it seems to me like you've forgotten that you have a good thing. It's, it, look, you've forgotten. Who wants that? Who wants some other pastor to hear us griping and complaining and be like, oh, no, brother, um, remember God's blessed you. <laughs> Ouch. But that's what Samuel has to do here with Saul. Sadly, short-sighted leaders like Saul can't appreciate what they have until it's gone. Until it's gone. Did you, know, did you know that ministry, it hangs in a very fragile balance, one that God maintains? And we're always seeing people come into the church and leave church, and there's all kinds of problems that we have to wade through and difficulties. And, and church and family life together and mission, it's a fragile thing, isn't it? And so many of us can't appreciate what God has given us until it's gone. And we look back, I mean, who wants to say, I wasted a good thing? Verse 26, and Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. There's a consequence. Saul loses what was supposed to be his blessing, was supposed to be his heritage. And it's like, and he had, does, now he doesn't, even, he doesn't even have a relationship with God. He's got nothing left. From, from this point forward, it's, the whole work is a sham. Saul's endeavors from this moment on are an absolute sham. And it's really sad watching him. It's pathetic. I don't want to be pathetic. I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose what God has given me. I don't want to ever come to a place where I'm not thankful for the good and the bad and the ugly that God has given me. Given me. As the story continues on in verse 20, and Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He's still delusional. And have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And have, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So Saul is lying at this point. He's continuing to, to try and save face. He just sticks with the lie. He just sticks with it. Because maybe Samuel believe, will believe it. If I keep saying this over and over again, or if I manipulate the situation, maybe, maybe I'll convince them otherwise. It's pathetic. It's sad. It reminds me of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira and says, Thou hast lied, uh, not lied unto men, but unto God. 
I mean, talk all you want, and you might, you might convince somebody. But God knows. God knows. Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. We're so familiar with that, vo- uh, that verse in Scripture. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. So after lying, after covering up what was obvious to everyone but him, he finally gave up and confessed his sin. I believe this is the last noble act of Saul. It took a lot of convincing, though. Some men are never convinced. Some men never break. Some men carry lies to the grave. I'm reading, a, I'm reading The Shooting Salvationist, which is the uh, biography of J. Frank Norris. Some stubborn men, stubborn men of God. Thankfully, Saul breaks here. Samuel receives him one last time, one last time into fellowship. Verse 24, And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people. He did, didn't he? Moment of revelation for him. He feared the people. He always feared the people. He feared the people when they wanted to appoint him king, and he was hiding he was, he, everyone's looking for him. Where's, where, where is Saul? Where is our king at for crying out loud? And he's like hiding in a closet, the broom closet somewhere. I don't, I don't want to go out there. They're going to judge me. This dude's always been afraid of the people. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again unto me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned away to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle. Saul Saul grabbed the hold of his his garment and rent it. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. I have sinned. There's no more. The people told me this. The people told me that. Finally, he stops with the blaming other people, and he says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, <clears throat> and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again unto Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. God gave Samuel the grace to worship with Saul once more. But this was ultimately the end of his story. Samuel had washed his hands of Saul, and he only had one more thing left on his agenda. And I think this is where we're going to end, and I think it's very, very important. Samuel had one more thing after he worshipped with Saul. One more thing on his agenda, and it was critical. It's critical. Verse 32, then said Samuel, 
Bring ye hither to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately, as you would imagine he would. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past, right? Right, bro? It's cool, right? I'll just, I'll just be there, your servant forever. Just, you know, just put me wherever you want. Just put me over in the corner. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now I want you to visualize this for a second. Here's Saul, who's disobeyed the Lord and was a poor leader. And everyone, all of that army, the nation of Israel, is watching Saul and they're watching him compromise. They're watching him make compromises over and over again. And it's been toxic. I mean, worship in Israel during this time is terrible. People aren't following the Lord. They're looking at their leader and they're seeing a man of compromise. And so when all this goes down, Samuel knows that he has one responsibility. And that's to do the very best that he can to set things right. I mean, he can't, he can't reverse time. He can't go back in time and change things. There's nothing that he can do. But he can do his very best in the moment to deal with the issue in the Spirit of God. Here's our key point. Biblical leaders are responsible for mitigating damages for the glory of God. Biblical leaders are responsible for mitigating the damages for the glory of God. Biblical leaders, in other words, biblical leaders are not afraid to get their hands dirty in order to clean up the mess. Nobody wants this job. Nobody, nobody is excited about going in and picking up the pieces of broken ministry. No, there's no leader who wants to be an expert in helping men of God who've fallen and spoiled the ministry. No one wants to be about that. That's a tough job. That's a tough gig. Even in the worst situations that you can imagine in ministry, just imagine them. The worst case scenarios in ministry, it's the leader's responsibility to find a way to honor God through all the mess. To do right by God. To function and act and behave in a way that glorifies His name even when the entire situation only, only smells terrible, is rotten in his nostrils. I mean, we're supposed to be raising up incense and in worship before the Lord, and when ministry falls around, it just stinks. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's pitiful. It's putrid. It's rotten. And we have to be, as leaders, willing to say, you know what, this is bad. But I'm going to do what's right. 
I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to try to put the pieces back together. So here we have Samuel. He's committed to cleaning up everyone else's mess. This isn't his mess. He never wanted any of this. It's like coming home and finding out that your kids have destroyed the house. It's not a mess you made. You know, it's not your fault that your youngest got into the Nutella and now it's all over the cabinetry. That's not your fault. But as the leader, it's your job to step in and do your very best to clean it up. I remember one time I came home from, from work and uh, discovered that Shepard, he had just learned to write his name. This is my son. He's 12 now, but you know, at the time he's like four or five. He just learned how to write his name. He found a Sharpie and he wrote his name on everything in his bedroom, right? This is my dresser. This is my wall. This is my other wall. This is my third wall and my fourth wall. This is my window. And he wrote his name like backward, backwards S, you know, it's like all, you know, he was still stupid, you know, so he couldn't really do it good. And so I'm in there, I'm in there, I'm having to clean this up, I'm, you know, it's my job. And you know what? I deciphered as a leader, I deciphered between what was weakness and wickedness. And I, I dealt with it at the level that I needed to in order to preserve him. And leaders who are in these situations, their job is to do their very best to preserve God's people, to preserve their hearts, to preserve their willingness to follow him. It's tough, but they have to be willing to do it. Saul made a public blunder, and so Samuel had to make a public correction. Samuel could have walked away. Could, couldn't he have? He could have just walked away. He said, just left it to Saul. You figure it out. He could have walked away. Leave them with their mess. But I believe that he looked around and he saw those soldiers and he saw that military. And I believe that he felt the eyes of God. And he knew that he had to set an example and that he had to worship the Lord. Seems weird. Seems weird that he worshiped the Lord by cutting a man into pieces. Seems strange. David did it, though. David, every enemy of the Lord that he brought down was worship. Every blood-stained sword represented worship before God. I don't know if you remember Elijah. You know, Elijah had this contest with the prophets of Baal. And it was real. It's a crazy story. I don't have time to rehearse it, but you guys remember that, that, that Elijah wins, that God wins that day. The fire comes down and, and it scorches the offering and, and it's a display of God's might and his presence, that he's the one true God. And the nation of Israel, they're all watching and they're amazed. They're, they're amazed by what God has done that day. And he turns to them and he's, he extends his hand and he says to the nation of Israel, so will you follow God? And they're like, well, we're not so sure yet. 
And I believe, I believe that Elijah knew that if anyone was going to glorify God that day, it would be him. And he took every one of those prophets down to the brook and slayed them himself one by one until God got the glory. A man drenched in blood, worshiping the Lord. Dealing with the the failures of other leaders is not easy business. Getting our hands dirty in that way, it's, it's never fun. But I believe it's necessary. And I believe we all have a responsibility to pick up the pieces and preserve what we can when things go bad. We got to get behind that work because you know what? Unity is precious to God. Unity is precious to God. And as a leader, it should be precious to you. It should be precious to you. Samuel does his part here and then he disappears. We don't really see him much again in the remainder of the story. Verse 34 says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Um, So, chapter 15. There's a lot going on there. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share it with you. It means a lot to me. It's, I've, I have, you know, I've probably read 1 Samuel more than I have any book in the Bible. And it's, it's, um, it's meant so much to me. I love it deeply. And, uh, and there's so much to share. But, but I, I'm really hoping, we, st- we wanted to start today here because I felt like it, it's the, one of the clearest examinations of leadership in a single chapter that we have in the whole of Scripture. And I hope that we gain something from it. The prayer has to be for the fellowship. If we're talking, again, I want to bring things back together before I hand it off to Troy. But, but if we're talking about raising up a generation of men and women of God that are going to continue the work of God, that they're going to take the baton and then that they're going to slay more giants than we ever could have, we have to start by addressing what isn't right in our, in our relationship with the Lord and the way that we lead people. We have to address this stuff. And I hope that it's beneficial and I, I hope it's been probing for you and provocative and I hope that we just continue to, to study more together. I love you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand it off to Troy. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.